Welcome to the teacher and the preacher. This program is all about the importance of coming to understand that the Christian community and the Jewish community have more in common than we have been led to believe. Rather than seeing each other as against each other, we need to come to a point of seeing that the statement that our country is a Judeo-Christian nation is much more than just a mere statement, but truly reflects the reality of our nation as it was and should remain. Every week there will be an interesting dialogue about the issues that have divided Jews and Christians and how we can move in bridging the gaps and see that by talking about the issues, we can better move in the direction of having more unity. Unity that will heal and help bring together a nation that is under attack by the forces of atheism, secularism, and a breakdown of family values. Join us now for a discussion between the teacher and the preacher. Welcome to The Teacher and the Preacher, and thank you for your listenership this weekend. Thank you so much for tuning in. Maybe you're a first-time listener. Maybe you're a regular listener. If you're a first-timer, you know, this is a dialogue that happens every week between a Christian pastor and an observant Jew, and we are not only using the program to build bridges, but we also talk about those things that have historically been very divisive between our two faiths. And we always start the program like this. I'm the preacher, Dave Magera, And I'm the teacher, Harold Berman. And listeners who've been with us for a while, you know we have some amazing guests, and this week is no exception. This is somebody I've wanted to have on the show for quite a while, and we're very grateful to have him. So I'll introduce him. Rabbi Binny Friedman is the founder and dean of Oraita, which is yeshiva. That's a center of higher Jewish learning, which is designed specifically for young men after high school, and is located in the heart of Jerusalem's old city. Rav Binney, as many call him, has been unusually successful in creating and empowering a new generation of young Jewish leadership equipped to lead their communities at prestigious college campuses throughout North America, England, Australia, and South Africa. He's a sought-after speaker throughout North America and worldwide, and we could actually have an amazing conversation with Rav Binney about how to engage young people on a spiritual level, but that's actually not our topic today, because in addition to being a rabbi, Rav Bini also is an Israel Defense Forces company commander who first came to Israel as a lone soldier in 1982. He has been on Israel's front lines, and he has also survived the Sabaros restaurant suicide bombing in Jerusalem in 2001. He's considered an expert in his field and has been interviewed by CNN, MSNBC, and WCBS. So we turn to Rav Bini today because our topic is the ethics of war. And specifically, what does the Torah, what does the Bible, and Jewish sources that draw from the Bible have to say about how war is conducted? And the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, has often been called the most moral army in the world. It has a strict ethical code and often goes to great lengths in wartime situations that no other army, including the U.S., does. Welcome, Rav Bini. Hi, thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. So you came to Israel as a lone soldier in 1982. Now, some of our listeners may not be familiar with what that is. Can you tell us a little about being a lone soldier, specifically also what drew you to leave a, you know, a comfortable life in America and on your own come to Israel as a you know, late teenager, I assume, and join the army? Sure. Um, I actually had my map, my life all mapped out. I had uh, gotten into my dream school. I was set to go to Columbia, New York. And I was really only coming to Israel to study for a year after high school, before going to college. Came here, fell in love with the country, fell in love with the people. Um, you know, I grew up as a traditional Jew. We've been praying to return to Jerusalem and Israel for a millennium. 
And, uh, you know, you finally get here and you feel something that's indescribable. So I decided to stay. And eventually I joined up. I was in the Army for about four and a half years. Uh, like you said, became a company commander. A lone soldier is someone who opts to volunteer for the Army. Um, if you decide to stay in Israel, become a citizen, you get drafted. Um, but he has no support system. My parents were in America. My family was in America. Um, I actually had an older brother who came around the same time. He is also a lone soldier. What it means basically is that, you know, when you, when you get out on a weekend pass, you don't have, you know, sort of a mom waiting for you, cooking, cleaning, mm. laundry. <laughs> uh, we rented our own apartment. We had to shop for ourselves, et cetera. But even though it sounds intense, it, it, I didn't really get that it was such a big deal. Like that wasn't, like when you think about the hardships of the army, that's, that wasn't really sort of what made it difficult. What what was the first time that you saw a combat situation? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it was actually pretty early on. We were in a course. I think I was all of about three months in the Army. And we were in tank school. And for some reason, I'm not exactly sure why, they, um, they took us up to Lebanon for a week. Um, it was the first time I got fired at. We were laying down ambushes uh, in an area near Rashidia. Rashidia is um, an Arab, uh, it's a Lebanese town on the coast, south of Tsur, Sidon, Beirut, that whole line. Um, in fact, I remember the first time we were fired at, we were in safari trucks heading into Lebanon. We had no combat experience. We were all of three, four months trained. And there was a, a white car parked in the field. Safari truck, by the way, is a, a truck that has benches running down the middle, facing out, <clears throat> you know, so that the soldiers can kind of look out and fire if whatever. And um, there was some pickup truck with a couple guys standing on it. And I started hearing this sound. Now, you know, today, if I heard it, I could tell you there was a firecracker and a gunshot, like if you woke me up at three in the morning. But that was the first time I ever really heard something from a distance like that. So I wasn't 100% sure. And I kind of nudged the guy next to me. I go, no guy's shooting at us. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we started banging. A sergeant saw it. And then everything went, you know, we clambered out the back and fired back. These guys took off. We never, I don't think they ever fought them. But, uh, you know, it got intense later on, especially once you become a commander and an officer has a lot more responsibility. Um, yeah. You know, it doesn't actually end. I think one of the things people don't realize, you know, when you're, when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, even as an officer with a lot of responsibility, it's, it's still to some degree an adventure. Like at the end of the day, you know, there was a period of time um, my older brother was uh, in Sidon, in Siramavet. It became known as Death Row because every day another paratrooper was getting killed there. Um, and I was in the Becca Valley opposite the Syrians. It was equally intense. You know, they were firing anti-tank weapons at us, throwing grenades. Somebody was getting hurt every week. Um, but you kind of in the back of your mind, like I honestly didn't think that I was going to finish the Army. I was kind of, I don't know why. I, was, I just went through this period where I was sure that I was going to get it. And it didn't actually bother me. I thought if you're going to go, that's a good way to go. You know, fighting for something you believe in, you know, what you love. Then you finish the army and you think you're done and you find out that you've just started. Um, I only finished the reserves about two, three years ago, which is a much more difficult type of army because you're kind of in the middle of your life and then you get called up and all of a sudden you're back in uniform, you know, doing all the things you have to do in the army. It's a very difficult switch. Probably the most difficult experience I had was in the Second Intifada. In the Second Intifada, if you remember, 
that started in uh, the year 2000. It actually started over Rosh Hashanah. Um, and uh, I basically got a phone call the night after Rosh Hashanah. That's the Jewish New Year. Um, I think it was about 1, 1.30 in the morning. It was my battalion commander. And he said, we've gotten uh, an emergency call-up. I'd never had an emergency call-up. I, you know, I would get reserved duty. You know, they have to give you notice 40 days in advance. They tell you how long you're going to be in for. It's like 1.30 in the morning. He says, listen, we've been called up. I said, whoa. And we've been hearing the news. We knew there was like shooting and firing and all over the country. And I said, well, when do we have to report in? He goes, now. I said, well, how long are we going to be in for? He said, I have no idea. And I end up in the army for about six and a half weeks. And, you know, you have to kind of find time to call all the meetings you had, the classes you were going to give, the programs you were running. All of a sudden, my wife is dealing with the kids on her own for six weeks. That's actually a much more difficult type of army experience. And I think because of that, the, the, the fire experiences that you have just seem much more intense. Yeah. You know, I don't have to answer your question, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. In fact, um, I was thinking about this, you know, okay. So Deuteronomy chapter 20, you know, there's that place where it says, you know, before the battle, the priest uh, addresses the troops and he tells them, you know, have courage because God is fighting their battles. But then he goes on and he exempts from battle anyone who has built a new house, who's planted a vineyard, didn't harvest it, is engaged, but not yet married, or who generally is afraid. And, you know, that sounds like, nice but obviously you know israel doesn't have that kind of of luxury uh right. you know at least at this point but uh, so uh, you know you're getting really at, at one of the things i wanted to talk about which is uh so much of the army is reserves and it's people with families and with children and how does how does the idf um address that you know or do they how do they um you know or how, how sensitive are they to the fact you know obviously within the realities of war to the fact that you know they're dealing with people who have uh families look you know this whole country is a family i'm not sure people really get that unless they've experienced it certainly if you're reading the press um and just like a family i mean you know we we families fight you know they get into arguments and that sort of stuff but when something serious comes along they forget all about their arguments and they all pull together. That's what a family is supposed to do. The country is the same way. So, you know, the entire country supports the army. I mean, all you have to say is that you're, you know, you're on reserves or you're headed for the army. People, you know, sort of, there's a whole framework of support that you get. Um, people understand, you know, to a certain degree, I'm not saying it's simple. Um, there are practical issues. You know, my daughter uh, just finished medical school. She told me that her second year of medical school, there was a, a fellow who was in her class who had to repeat the year because the previous year um, had been Tsuketan. That was the 2014 um, war in Aza. And this fellow was a battalion commander and he had basically missed 58 days of the year because of the war and all the reserve duty that he had to do. And there's a limit to how many days you can miss in medical school. So he basically failed the year. The fact that he was a reserve colonel, they were sympathetic, but you know, you're training a doctor, he has to have a certain amount of training. But there are definitely certain things that, you know, we pay a price. Um, you know, there's a lot of, it's a very personal system, you know, as a company commander, I would very often have soldiers who would reach out, we actually would run two or three evenings in the weeks before the actual reserve duty for people that had special needs or issues, or it's my son's bar mitzvah, all those sort of things. And we worked really, really hard to make sure that when guys needed to get out or if they needed to show up late or sometimes they needed to miss reserve duty, um, we did a pretty good job of handling that. Um, 
So, you know, as much as is possible, the Israeli army takes it into account. It probably makes it uh, it's a really different atmosphere than the U.S. Army or, or, or most countries' armies in that, as you said, the whole country is in it together. You know, everybody gets it. There is there is, there are two major differences. I mean, I've had students in the U.S. Army, but I don't obviously know it as intimately as the Israeli Army. But I do think that there are two major differences. The first difference is that because this is such a small country, um, so you're never that far from home. You know, I'm, I once met somebody, I was giving a lecture overseas and a fellow came over to me afterwards and turned out that he had been in Vietnam and he was relating to a couple of army stories I told. He told me that he had been, he had done actually two tours of duty and his first tour of duty, they finally gave him an R&R, like a, you know, sort of rest and relaxation. He got a week off. He went to, I think, Hong Kong. Um, he was basically away from his home for a year. You know, the soldiers who fought in World War II, some of them were away from home for two and a half years before they got home. In Israel, that would never happen. The most that I was in the army without sort of being back in Israel when I was in Lebanon at one point was six weeks, and that was horrendous. But, but you know, so that's the first major difference. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why, despite the fact that there are so many men here who carry weapons, um, you know, they don't go dinky down because they get, they get that decompression every few weeks or every two weeks. The second difference is that I think people really feel that they're protecting their home. You know, um, I'm not sure that the average American soldier, if he's stationed in Germany um, or even in Iraq or Afghanistan, it really feels that he's protecting his home. He feels he's yeah. serving his country, but it's more of a foreign service diplomatic need. Maybe in the in the fight against terror, some commanders succeed in imbuing that spirit in the fighting men, but it's a much more difficult sell. Um, you know, so I think that's a major difference. Also, it's interesting to point out the verses that you quote in Deuteronomy. There was what's called Muhammad Mitzvah, which is a war that's a, a mitzvah, it's an obligation. And that's when you're defending against an enemy that wants to destroy you, right? Um, there's a second type of war, which is an expansionist war. You know, uh, maybe they're diverting you know, the river, there was a point where Syria was diverting, you know, the Armuch River to feed into the Kinneret. And Israel feels that financially, economically, that's war. What's going on today with Ethiopia and Egypt, Ethiopia is building a dam on the Nile River or, or rebuilding it. Egypt feels threatened. That's not, that, that's not a case where your, your, your country's, you know, sort of um, um, existence, it's not an existential issue for the country. It's economic, it's a expansionist issue you know imagine somebody would have one of our gas fields so that's a threat to israel but it's not the same as the syrian army rolling across the golan heights and threatening right. tel aviv so the verse where a person who's afraid is is allowed to go home is actually when you're talking about an expansionist war if you're talking about a mm. war where you know sort of the enemy is at the gates as it were then even the bride goes to fight from her bridal canopy so i think that m most israeli soldiers feel that way and i guess to a certain degree that changed with certain aspects of the lebanon war and the intifada but for the most part that's certainly how i felt well, so benny thanks for being a part of the program this weekend i think for our, our listeners a couple of things that might be of uh, further interest and this has been really good is, you know, there is a reason why it's called the israel defense forces versus like you know we have the u.s army um, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, that might be good to give a little bit of insight. And the second thing is, you know, uh, 
the IDF, uh, you know, Israel's IDF, they really have a very serious code of ethics that a lot of times the the world does not pay any attention to. They don't recognize uh, the length to which Israel will go to protect innocent civilians, regardless of who they are, those kind of things. Uh, talk about uh, those two pieces uh, uh, sure. briefly. Look, when, whenever you go to reserve duty, this was certainly true in the regular army, but in the regular army, it's easier because you're trained for this. It's constantly being sort of, you know, reminded, uh, uh, said and inculcated in the troops. But when you go to reserve duty and you haven't been maybe in a year or two, so there's a whole three-day preparation before you go out in the field. And if you're doing active duty, like I remember at the beginning of the first intifada, this was in 88, it was my first reserve duty, and we were in Aza, we were in the Gaza Strip, and we spent three, three days in a base, uh, well, I guess I won't mention the name, but somewhere in central Israel. And a significant part of those three days, aside from the obvious maneuvers and reminding yourself and firing range and all that sort of stuff, um, was the rules of engagement. Um, and soldiers were, were stressed about this. Like, you don't want to end up in court after your reserve duty. To the degree that sometimes guys would be in a serious situation, they'd be afraid to fire you know, not because they're worried about hitting a civilian, because obviously you don't want to hit a civilian, but even if they were afraid, you know, that they might hit somebody's property and they'd be taken to court, really, really strict rules. Um, you know, not to mention sort of how far the Israeli army goes beyond the call of duty. You know, I remember we were once, um, we were on a lookout point. There was a, a particular area and there was a, a crossroads and there were a lot of Israeli civilians vehicular traffic that went through this crossroads and it was an Arab area. And so there'd been some, you know, Molotov cocktail shooting. So they decided to put an Israeli position and because it was a hot zone and there was a lot of serious terrorism going on in the area, they wanted an officer sort of in charge of this particular. So we basically went on top of a home. It was some Arab fellow and we took over his roof. In other words, that's, you know, legally allowed under the Geneva code to protect life and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and every day when we finished, you know, we would sort of go down once the vehicular traffic died down. Um, one of the soldiers uh, brought from home a, a, a broom and a squeegee. I don't know how you say squeegee in English, but it's basically to mop up water, like a mop. Mm-hmm. And he would wash down the area where we sat. He wanted to make sure that the fellow who owned the house didn't feel that we had left a mess. You know, um, the guys would, uh, one of the guys brought a mud catcher to, to, to take the mud off our boots before we walked into his house. It wasn't like muddy fields, but you know, a little dirt that we shouldn't, we shouldn't, you know, put dirt into his house. I don't know many armies that do that sort of thing. Um, and then obviously, you know, uh, rules of engagement. I mean, you have to feel that you are directly threatened and that your life is in danger or the life of your men or the life of a civilian, by the way, Jewish or Arab, before you're allowed to even begin thinking about opening fire. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. I'll give you a good example. Um, I remember once uh, we were, yeah, do you have time for a story? Is that okay? Yeah. 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 So we were we were on patrol in Aza, in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and this is when things really sort of changed. Like up until 1988-89, you could be on a Jeep with another guy driving through Aza. You, you know, the Arab, you felt that you were protecting Arabs as much as Jews. All of a sudden, for whatever the reasons that are beyond the scope of this conversation, but they certainly have to do with Hilo and Arafat, things went haywire. So the next thing I know, I'm on the reserves and I'm, 
I'm doing a patrol in Aza, leading a 12-man patrol. And we get a, a, a radio call that there's something going on in a central square in Jabalia. Jabalia is a refugee camp in Aza. It's a nasty little piece of overpopulated territory. And we basically came around the corner and there was a riot going on. They were burning tires. They were throwing things. There were about five, 600 people, men, women, children, the elderly. It was unbelievable. And there were masked men, sort of amidst the civilians. Um, and this was a full-blown riot. Now, what they, the, 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 the standard operating procedure at the time, because remember, Israel was just learning how to deal with these things, like, you know, put me in a tank in charge of a company on an open field of battle against certain tanks, and I know exactly what to do. But walk around a corner and see 600 civilians, you're not sure what to do. But this was an ongoing journey as we learned how to deal with it. So the only thing I was sure of was that nobody, you know, I was going to make sure nobody opened fire. These are five, 600 people, they're women, children. And we had all this riot gear. We had, you know, helmets and we had uh, plastic bullets and rubber bullets, which are basically rubber pellets that, um, you know, and the Arabs were very good. They knew how to deal with this stuff already. We had gas grenades that were basically harmless. They would just, you would cough a little and it would cause people to run away. And the idea was that we would call the battalion. They would send all the vehicles they could muster. We would leave the widest avenue open so that people would naturally sort of escape out whatever widest avenue was. Right. And, and, you know, they figured if 20, you know, vehicles and 100 men showed up and they started walking to the square, people would start to we'd shoot gas grenades and people would start to go in. It usually worked. The problem with the system was that meant that you had to stand there for 10 minutes waiting while the battalion got its vehicles to you. Now, that was a really intense 10 minutes. I mean, you're 12 guys in green pajamas, you know, <laughs> you know, uniforms. They're going to see you. And all of a sudden, they start throwing everything you can imagine. In fact, you ever hear the expression, everything but the kitchen sink? I don't have to say that because I actually once had a kitchen sink thrown at me out a window, right? <laughs> wow. Really, everything. <laughs> Dirty diapers, you name it. And all I'm doing is telling my men, you know, nobody shoots. You know, nobody, no, no, no one can fire. I didn't feel we were in danger. It was scary, but it wasn't, you know. And, um, and there were about, I don't know, seven or eight children. They could not have been more than seven or eight years old, right? And they were in the front of this riot and they were kind of edging towards it. And they were throwing rocks and a couple of them threw bottles, but I didn't personally feel that it, given what we were wearing and I just didn't feel it was life-threatening. And I didn't see the point in firing in the air because I didn't want to exasperate. We were waiting for more vehicles to come. And at one point I had one soldier, he was a Sephardic fellow, new Arabic, and uh, he had actually just celebrated becoming a grandfather for the first time. You're not talking about a 20 year old, a lot of experience he'd fought in the Yom Kippur War, but he understood what they were yelling at. Now, I didn't know a lot of Arabic back then, but I recognized, you know, for certain words, your sister, Emma, your mother, they were not playing Jewish geography here, right? And, <laughs> and children are very smart. Like your kids know when they're getting to you. These kids figured out that this guy was getting hot under the collar. I literally put my hand on his shoulder. He was like on one knee. And, you know, to sort of make sure that he understood that we're not doing anything. And they're yelling at him and they're getting closer. And I was, I was thinking to myself, like, I, on the one hand, I was so impressed. Like, these are eight-year-old kids. They're pretty courageous to just walk up to Israeli soldiers. And later on, I mean, and thank God nobody was hurt and, and we succeeded in dispersing them. Right? Later on, I thought about three things. The first thing I thought about was, would we as, never mind if we were an army, as civilians, would we ever allow seven or eight-year-old kids to, to, to walk towards soldiers 
in a situation like that, it was really dangerous. It, it, it made clear to me the difference between how we view this and how they view this, they being whoever they were in that case. That was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I thought about was, you know, the same time that the Intifada broke out in Israel, it also broke out in Egypt. In the southern Gaza Strip, Rafiach was under the control of Egypt since the 78, 79 peace accord. Um, and Egypt had the same thing. They had riots and rallies. They solved the problem much more simply. They sent one armored personnel carrier with live fire. They just ran into these crowds and opened fire. They killed about 30 people. And, uh, and that was the end of the Egyptian Intifada. And I remember thinking years later, there were many more Arabs that have been killed over the last 30 years. I'm still glad that I'm part of an army that chooses to take the long run. They would never do such a thing, right? Um, and the third was I thought a lot about how Israel trains its soldiers that they could be in a situation like that for 10 minutes and that everyone understood like nobody opened fire and nobody even cocked their gun and nobody like everybody just understood, you know, unless we're threatened, we're not going to risk hurting a civilian. We didn't even fire our rubber pellets. You know, they, they, they got good at this. They would take newspapers and wrap them up under their shirts because then the rubber pellets would kind of bounce off and not really hurt them. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a different mentality, I think. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, that, that's also made me think, the, and all, this also goes back to Deuteronomy, you know, the, there's this Jewish premium on uh, valuing life above all else. And many of our, our enemies, as it were, unfortunately, uh, see, seem to be, you know, the opposite persuasion. Um, you know, I, I was wondering, you know, just uh, we still have a few more minutes, uh, maybe if you're comfortable talking a little bit about your experience with the Sabaro bombing, uh, because, that, you know, that situation where, you know, you've mentioned the Intifada a few times where, uh, you know, you have a, a culture that lives right alongside us uh, in Israel that uh, doesn't value life and uh, is, is looking at it through a very different lens. Look, you know. That was obviously a very intense experience. Um, you're in the army or reserves. In the back of your head, you kind of know it could happen, something could happen. But when you're sitting down in a pizza store on a beautiful Thursday afternoon in Jerusalem, there are children running around. You're just as far removed from that reality as you can think of. I mean, you know, as much as in the newspapers, it may seem like, you know, bombs are blowing up. I mean, if you live in Oklahoma, Los Angeles, or Pittsburgh, you don't actually think, you, you don't walk to the street corner and think such a thing could happen. Even today, after there've been, you know, mass shootings in America over the last two years, most people, you just, you're not used to, you don't think that way. So obviously to see what you see in, in, in a moment like that is a horrendous thing to experience. Um, I, was, I was so thankful afterwards that my kids weren't with me. I think that would have traumatized them forever. And that's a whole longer story, that particular experience. But I will tell you this. Um, the fellow who walked in, the terrorist who walked in, um, he had his explosives, they think, in a guitar case. Uh, before he blew himself and everybody else up, I mean, he murdered 15 people. There were over 60 people wounded. It was just horrendous. Um, the last two words that he was heard yelling were, Allah Akbar, which means God is great. Mm. If anything is, I agree with him. I do think God is great. <clears throat> and, you know, you kind of question afterwards, well, that's interesting because here's a guy willing to die, you know, for something greater than himself. He 
believes in something, he's, he's willing to give up his life for something that he believes in. And I can say that that's true about me. So then you say to yourself, well, what's the difference? Rav Cook, who was the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel, said, all the baggage we have in life, all this stuff, it all emanates from our relationship with God. If a person has a healthy relationship with God, he's going to do healthy things in his life. I think a person who can do that has a warped perception of God. I think it speaks to the question that you raised because, you know, people talk about, I remember when Arafat was leading the PLO and I was on uh, CNN because of Sparrows and the, the fellow interviewing me asked me, you know, would you talk with Arafat? And I said, honestly, no. I thought that Arafat was a, was a mass terrorist. I don't think he was repentant. And by that time I felt sort of enough had been demonstrated. I mean, seven years after Oscar, yeah. that there was no point in talking. So the fellow said to me, well, if you wouldn't talk to Arafat, who would you talk to? So I said, well, you know, sometimes there isn't someone to talk to. And the allies right. understood right. that at the end of World War II, they demanded unconditional surrender. They realized there was no one in Nazi Germany you could talk to. There was no one in Japan you could talk to. Right. Right. That's the first issue. And the second issue is, I do believe that we will one day find peace with the Arabs, but I think it'll only happen when somehow we all figure out how to help them educate their children to want peace. Absolutely. We're not there yet. Absolutely. You know, and and with that, unfortunately, we're, 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 we've just run out of time. But this sure. has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us this weekend, Benny. Really appreciate oh, it. Was a pleasure. It. God willing, I hope next time we'll be talking about how it was that peace broke out so quickly. <laughs> <laughs> well, may the God who never slumbers or sleeps, may he watch over Israel, the Jewish people, and may he bless America. Amen. Thanks Amen. for all your good work, guys. Amen. Okay, thank you, Benny.